You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The Valley of Pennsylvania, through which my command marched from Gettysburg, awakened the most conflicting emotions. It was delightful to look upon such a scene of universal thrift and plenty. Its broad grain fields, clad in golden garb, were waving their welcome to the reapers and binders. Some fields were already dotted over with harvested shocks. The huge barns on the highest grounds meant to my sore-footed marchers a mount, a ride, and a rest on a broad-backed horse. On every side, as far as our alert vision could reach, all aspects and conditions conspired to make this fertile and carefully tilled region a panorama both interesting and enchanting. It was a type of the fair and fertile Valley of Virginia at its best before it became the highway of armies and the ravages of war had left it wasted and bare. The melancholy contrast between these charming districts, so similar in other respects, brought to our southern sensibilities a touch of sadness. We entered York on Sunday morning, June 28th. A committee composed of the mayor and prominent citizens met my command on the main pike before we reached the corporate limits, their object being to make a peaceable surrender and ask for protection to life and property. They returned, I think, with a feeling of assured safety. The church bells were ringing and the streets were filled with well-dressed people. The appearance of these church-going men, women, and children in their Sunday attire strangely contrasted with that of my marching soldiers. Begrimed as we were from head to foot with the all-pervading gray powder which rose in dense columns from the macadamized pikes and settled in sheets on men, horses, and wagons, it is no wonder that many of York's inhabitants were terror-stricken as they looked upon us. Brigadier General John B. Gordon, Brigade Commander, Early's Division, Ewell's Corps. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 312 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall in the last show, the veteran Confederate troops of Jubal Early's division of Ewell's Corps crossed over South Mountain at Cashdown Gap and made their way toward Gettysburg on their way to York and the Susquehanna River. Leading the advance, a battalion of Virginia cavalry, nicknamed the Comanches, encountered the 26th Pennsylvania Emergency Militia, a hastily organized regiment composed of eager but entirely untrained volunteers. 
It didn't take long for the Confederate horsemen to send these rookie Union soldiers running. Coming along behind the Comanches, John Gordon's brigade of Georgia infantry marched into the town of Gettysburg. Gordon's men spent the night in Gettysburg, but by the following morning, Saturday the 27th, they were gone, continuing their march toward York, 27 miles away. The people of Gettysburg heaved a collective sigh of relief as the enemy soldiers marched away from town. Having now been visited by the war firsthand, they believed the rest of the Confederate invasion of Pennsylvania would pass them by. Of course, no one in Gettysburg could have predicted on June 27th that the war would return to their town just four days later, and when it returned, it would do so with an unimaginable fury. As Dick Yule's command advanced toward the Susquehanna River, A.P. Hill and James Longstreet led their corps, in turn, up the Cumberland Valley in Yule's Wake, to Chambersburg, where they bivouacked around the town and in the nearby countryside. Back at the rear of Longstreet's corps, George Pickett's division was last across the Potomac, crossing the river on June 25th. That Saturday, the 27th, the same day Gordon's Georgians were leaving Gettysburg for York, Robert E. Lee rode into Chambersburg. Lee established his headquarters in a pleasant grove of trees called Messersmith's Woods, located just outside town on the Chambersburg Pike, the road that led over South Mountain and east to Gettysburg. Over the next several days, while Dick Yule advanced toward the Susquehanna and Harrisburg, Lee, along with two-thirds of his army, that is, Hill's and Longstreet's commands, would pause around Chambersburg. It's clear enough that at this point, absent any news that the Federal Army was across the Potomac, Lee believed he still controlled the initiative in the campaign, and most important, that he would still be able to dictate where any battle was fought. We wanted to point out that you can see the positions of Hill's and Longstreet's Corps around Chambersburg and also follow the advance of Ewell's Corps toward the Susquehanna if you have either the maps of Gettysburg or Gettysburg Campaign Atlas. Yeah, in Gottfried's The Maps of Gettysburg, there are a series of maps on pages 32 through 37 that show the Confederate positions and also the movement north of the Army of the Potomac, which Lee doesn't yet know about, and which we'll talk about next week. Then, in Leno's Gettysburg Campaign Atlas, pages 70 through 72 show the same thing, but he also includes a nice map of Wrightsville and Columbia on the Susquehanna River, which is a spot that will feature prominently in our story here later in this episode. Anyway, you don't need the maps to follow along with the discussion, but they do help you picture what's going on, and, well, maps are just cool. Okay, well, as the maps show, the Rebel Army was pushing ever deeper into Pennsylvania, and among the Confederate rank and file, spirits soared as they marched deeper into the Keystone State. 
British officer Arthur Fremantle, who traveled with the Army of Northern Virginia, captured the spirit of Lee's troops as they marched across southern Pennsylvania, recording that, quote, At no other time have the men been so eager for a fight or so confident of success. As the men of Yule's Corps marched deeper into Pennsylvania, they took two different routes toward the Susquehanna. Robert Rhodes and Allegheny Johnson's divisions would follow the Valley Turnpike, heading toward Harrisburg by way of Shippensburg and Carlisle, while Jubal Early's division would use a more easterly route, passing through Gettysburg and heading toward York and the Susquehanna River. As the brigades of Early's division marched across south-central Pennsylvania, he noticed something curious was going on. Early said, quote, As we moved through the country, a number of people made mysterious signs to us. These mysterious signs were gestures or hand motions that seemed intended to convey some message. Well, Early said that upon investigation, it was found that just in advance of the Confederates' arrival, some enterprising Yankee con men had passed through the countryside and, for a small fee, offered to teach the frightened and gullible locals special hand signals, quote, which they were told would prevent the rebels from molesting them or their property. These things were all new to us, and the purchasers of the mysteries had been badly sold. No doubt the Confederates got a good laugh out of the entire business of the special hand signals. Speaking of fun, when one of Early's brigadiers, Extra Billy Smith, reached York, he took the opportunity to address the locals. Smith was a politician. In fact, at this time, in the summer of 1863, he was the governor-elect of Virginia. And like most politicians, he couldn't resist giving a speech, especially as in this case he had a captive audience, so to speak. Knowing one of the major northern war aims was to restore the Union by bringing the rebellious southern states back into the fold, Extra Billy started out his speechifying by asking the Pennsylvanians, My friends, how do you like this way of coming back into the Union? I hope you like it. Smith rambled on, not noticing the approach of his cantankerous division commander, Jubal Early was coming up with the next brigade in line, John Gordon's, and was not pleased that Extra Billy's impromptu rally was blocking the street and therefore blocking the entire column's path through York. An angry Early came up behind Extra Billy, jerked him around, and demanded to know, General Smith, what in the devil are you about stopping the head of this column in this cursed town? Smith good-naturedly replied, Having a little fun, General, which is good for all of us. Old Jube was obviously not amused, though, and Smith, having had his fun, wisely ordered his troops to fall in and finished marching on through town. Halting two miles outside York, at the county fairgrounds, he was joined by Hayes' Louisiana Brigade, while Gordon's troops would continue on to the Susquehanna and Wrightsville.
As John B. Gordon marched his Georgia regiments away from York and toward the Susquehanna, his objective was the massive bridge that crossed the river at Wrightsville, 25 miles downstream from Harrisburg. It seems Jubal Early's original orders from Dick Yule instructed him to burn the bridge, but by the time Gordon set out for Wrightsville, that had changed. Instead, Early was going to seize the bridge and use it to cross the Susquehanna, which would not only allow him to plunder the towns and farms of Lancaster County, but would also let him approach Harrisburg from the rear, while Yule came up through Carlisle and threatened the state capital from directly across the river. At 5,269 feet long and 40 feet wide, and sitting on 28 stone piers, the massive wooden structure that linked Wrightsville on the west bank with the town of Columbia on the east bank was the longest covered bridge in the world. It was also the only remaining span between Harrisburg and Maryland, so it was sure to attract Confederate interest. Defending the nearly mile-long bridge was another of those hurriedly organized Pennsylvania State Militia regiments, like the one the rebels had run into outside Gettysburg. You see, with the Army of the Potomac not yet having arrived on the scene, and with the Confederate invasion in full swing, the defense of Pennsylvania fell to an assorted mix of untrained home guards, hastily recruited state militia, and troops lent by neighboring states. Their officers and commanders also brought mixed talents, skills, and experience to the daunting task of protecting the Keystone State. Fortunately for the Federals, a veteran general was on hand to oversee the defense of Harrisburg. Forty-year-old Major General Darius Couch was a West Pointer and former Corps commander in the Army of the Potomac. In fact, Couch had until recently been Hooker's second-in-command, but had asked to be reassigned after the disaster that was the Battle of Chancellorsville because he had been so disgusted by Fighting Joe's performance there. On June 9th, with Robert E. Lee's army already on the move, the War Department issued an order creating two new military departments in Pennsylvania. One, the Department of the Monongahela, was headquartered in Pittsburgh, while the other, the Department of the Susquehanna, would be headquartered in Harrisburg. General Couch was assigned to the command of the Department of the Susquehanna. Couch left Washington and arrived in Harrisburg on the evening of June 12th. He immediately met with Pennsylvania's Republican Governor, Andrew Curtin. Both men agreed their first priority was to raise volunteers, and so on the 13th, Curtin issued the first of three proclamations, confirming the rumors of a possible Confederate invasion and urging men to sign up to defend the state. However, the initial response to Curtin's proclamation was lukewarm, since, as one man noted, quote, there was a serious lack of definiteness about the whole arrangement, end quote. Really, it came down to the fact that many were hesitant to sign up when their terms of service were up in the air. Were they signing up for the duration of the emergency, for 90 days, or for some other length of time? And besides that, there was the question of who would be paying them, the state government or Washington? This was a pressing question, 
since many men had served in the state's short-term emergency militia during the scare that attended Robert E. Lee's invasion of Maryland the previous year, and they had never been paid for that service. In the end, although the matters of length of service and pay were sorted out, and thousands of men responded to Curtin's proclamations, it was simply impossible to raise an army in the span of roughly two weeks. Instead, the invasion of their home state in the summer of 1863 brought out many well-meaning citizens who offered their service for defense of home and hearth, but who knew precious little or absolutely nothing about military drill or tactics. Couch assigned 38-year-old Colonel Jacob Frick and his 27th Pennsylvania Emergency Militia the task of defending the Wrightsville-Columbia Bridge. Frick was a career regular Army man, a veteran of the Mexican War, and here in the Civil War, while serving in the Army of the Potomac, he had displayed conspicuous bravery leading the 129th Pennsylvania at Fredericksburg and at Chancellorsville. In fact, he would receive the Medal of Honor for his courageous leadership under fire at those battles. The 129th mustered out in May 1863, and Frick was without an assignment when the Confederate invasion threatened the Keystone State that summer. Hurrying to Harrisburg to offer his services to Couch, he was assigned command of the 27th Pennsylvania Emergency Militia. On June 24th, Couch gave Frick the task of securing the stretch of the Susquehanna that included the bridge at Wrightsville. And for the next three days, Frick wondered how he could possibly protect the massive covered bridge that spanned the Susquehanna. After arriving at Columbia, he had marched his regiment across the river to Wrightsville and felt reasonably confident he could defend the span against raiding Confederate cavalry but he knew that confronting veteran rebel infantry with his painfully inexperienced command would be another matter altogether. In his book, Gettysburg, A Testing of Courage, Noah Andre Trudeau writes that Colonel Frick, quote, had taken some steps by ordering earthworks dug along high ground just west of Wrightsville, overlooking the bridge. While his men worked, they were also witness to a seemingly endless stream of refugees carrying belongings and herding animals over the bridge. On Saturday night, June 27th, Frick had met with Major Granville Holler, who had seen the 26th Pennsylvania Emergency Infantry swept aside attempting to defend Gettysburg, and now Frick feared the worst. He reinforced his entrenched position with more militia companies, including an all-black one, prepared a section of the almost mile-long span for destruction, and did the only thing he could do. He waited. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. 
On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Confederate Brigadier General John B. Gordon later claimed that as he rode his horse through York, a young girl slipped out of the crowd, gathered along the main street, and handed him a bouquet of flowers, hidden inside of which, much to his surprise, he found a handwritten note. Quickly scanning the note, he saw that it reported that only militia defended the important bridge over the Susquehanna at Wrightsville. The unsigned letter appeared to be written in a woman's hand, and although the mysterious author didn't express any sympathy for the Confederate cause, it was so explicit in its description of the militia's dispositions at Wrightsville that Gordon believed its message. The authorship of this intriguing note has long been debated, as has the question of whether it ever even existed. To us, it simply seems incredible that of all the Confederate officers riding through York that day, the message would have been handed to Gordon, and that he just happened to be the commander of the brigade that Jubal Early would task with continuing on, approaching, and seizing the Wrightsville Bridge. It all seems a bit far-fetched, but hey, that's just our two cents worth. At any rate, after passing through York on the morning of June 28th, and pushing on the 13 miles to Wrightsville, Gordon topped a rise that allowed him to inspect the Yankee defenses from a distance. As far as he could tell, the description in the mysterious note appeared to be correct in every detail, and he began to imagine descending upon the shaky Pennsylvania militia, putting them to flight, and seizing the important bridge across the river. So at 6.30 that evening, with daylight already beginning to slip away, Gordon's Georgia regiments began to shake out skirmishers and trade pot shots with Jacob Frick's picket line. Eventually, Gordon brought up two of the 20-pound parrot rifles captured at Winchester and began throwing shells at the federal positions. But Frick actually had no intention of making a stand. He lacked artillery of his own, and aside from that, he knew that his raw militia didn't have a chance of standing toe-to-toe with the veteran Confederate infantry beginning to close in on them. Frick may have lacked the means of making a stout defense of the bridge, but he certainly didn't lack the means to destroy it and deny its use to the enemy. 
Frick had already had black laborers and white militiamen working to weaken and mine the fourth span from the Wrightsville side, believing the destruction of just that section would deny the bridge's use to the rebels while still allowing it to be quickly rebuilt after the danger had passed. After holding off the rebels for about an hour, Frick ordered everyone to scramble back across the bridge, and as soon as the last of them had crossed the fourth span, he ordered the charges fired, but the explosives failed to drop that section into the river as planned. By now the rebels were swarming along the western riverbank and streaming into Wrightsville, so Frick ordered the bridge set on fire. The first curl of smoke rose into the sky shortly before 8 p.m., and soon the entire span was engulfed in flames. It must have been quite a sight to see the nearly mile-long structure destroyed in this way as the flames danced into the sky. One witness recalled that the bridge burned all night, and, quote, Some of the timbers, as they fell into the stream, seemed to form themselves into rafts, which floated down like infernal ferry boats of the region pictured by Dante. Flying embers from the fire lodged in roofs in Wrightsville, setting homes and stores ablaze, and before long, Gordon's Confederates had stacked their muskets and were passing buckets in long lines to save the town, as though all thought of the war which had brought them to that corner of Pennsylvania had been forgotten. Jubal Early arrived in Wrightsville and found John Gordon on the riverbank. Gordon filled in Old Jube on the evening's events. Of the destruction of the bridge, Early later admitted, quote, I regretted this very much, end quote. With his plans for using the span to gain a bridgehead on the eastern shore of the Susquehanna having gone up in smoke, quite literally, a disappointed Early concluded his brief conference with Gordon and returned to York. In the next segment of this episode, we'll turn our attention to the other portion of the Confederate expedition to the Susquehanna, that is, the march of the rest of Ewell's Corps toward Harrisburg by way of Shippensburg and Carlisle. But as an interesting footnote to Early's failed effort to capture the Wrightsville Bridge, we'll close this section by mentioning someone we haven't talked about for a while on the podcast. Yep, you see, over in Lancaster County, 11 miles from the Wrightsville-Columbia Bridge, lay Wheatland, the estate of former president James Buchanan. Gordon's Georgians knew of this, and one recorded that he and his comrades were, quote, eager to visit the old gentleman in his home and shake hands with him. Rumors had been circulating for days that the invading Confederates intended to kidnap him and use him as a political hostage, but still Buchanan had refused to leave Wheatland, even when he received the news that the rebels had captured York and were approaching Wrightsville. After that scare on the night of June 28th, with Early turned away and the threat apparently over, a relieved Buchanan wrote to a friend that, quote, The rebels might have paid a flying visit to Lancaster had not the bridge been burnt down. I remained quietly at home and would not have removed under any circumstances.
While Early's division was on the move through Gettysburg to York, the rest of Ewell's corps, that is, the divisions of Robert Rhodes and Allegheny Johnson, together with the corps' wagon trains, took a more northerly route up the Valley Turnpike through Shippensburg and Carlisle toward the Susquehanna and Harrisburg. Albert Jenkins' cavalry brigade was the forward screen for this part of Ewell's advance, and it was Jenkins' horsemen who first entered Carlisle on June 27th. The infantry of Rhodes' division marched in late that afternoon, with the band at the head of the column thundering Dixie. Carlisle happened to be a minor homecoming for Dick Yule. You see, the town had been the site of a military establishment even before the American Revolution, and the U.S. Army had maintained a barracks, depot, and cavalry training school there, where, years before the summer of 1863, a newly minted 2nd Lieutenant Richard Yule had his first posting. The Carlisle Barracks consisted of 13 buildings, including five two-story barracks, an enormous U-shaped stable, and a post-hospital. The Commandant, Captain Daniel Hastings, had already evacuated the post's 268 men to Harrisburg two days before. Ewell, with three of Rhodes' brigades, camped in the barracks, while George Dole's Georgia Brigade took possession of Carlisle's other major institution, Dickinson College. Coming up behind Rhodes on the Valley Turnpike, Allegheny Johnson's division halted several miles west of Carlisle and set up camp. As the Confederates settled into the barracks and their encampments, foraging parties spread out through the nearby countryside and the usual requisition of supplies was made upon Carlisle itself. While this was going on, a delegation of the town's clergy visited Yule, seeking permission to hold church services as usual the next day, since June 28th would be a Sunday. After Yule said that the churches could hold services as usual, the clergymen had one more question for the general. It was not uncommon, they said, for them to offer prayers for the president in times of crisis. And since these circumstances certainly fit that bill, would Yule object to their continuing this practice? Dick Yule replied, Certainly not. Pray for him. I'm sure he needs it. By the time Dick Yule reached Carlisle, he had Harrisburg squarely in his sights. It would be an understatement to say he badly wanted to capture the Pennsylvania state capitol. Not only would the fall of the city bring Yule personal glory, but it would severely disrupt the Federals' east-west lines of communication and supply. In addition, the potential political consequences of taking Harrisburg outweighed even its considerable strategic value. The Confederate capture of an important enemy state capital would likely cause panic in the North and further undermine public support for continuing the long war against the rebels. Back at the beginning of Ewell's march up the Cumberland Valley, Robert E. Lee had said Ewell had permission to capture Harrisburg if it came within his grasp. 
But by the evening of June 27th, with Ewell on the march to the Susquehanna and A.P. Hills and Longstreet's Corps concentrating around Chambersburg, Lee was prepared to issue definite orders for Ewell to go ahead and seize Harrisburg. According to Lee's plan for the next phase of the campaign, Longstreet would move up the Valley Turnpike, following behind Ewell along the Shippensburg-Carlisle route, while Hill was directed to move eastward, following in Jubal Early's footsteps along the Gettysburg-York route. All of that's to say that with everything having gone so well so far, the Susquehanna River and Harrisburg was now Lee's objective point. While the Confederate infantry were marching into town, Jenkins' rebel cavalry set out from Carlisle on the afternoon of June 27th, heading east for Mechanicsburg, the next town on the road to the Susquehanna and Harrisburg. Jenkins captured Mechanicsburg the next day, Sunday the 28th. The river and the Pennsylvania state capital lay less than four miles ahead. As commander of the Department of the Susquehanna, Darius Couch's goal was to keep the Confederates from reaching Harrisburg. However, he doubted that the tools he had to work with were up to the job. The federal forces stationed around the state capital totaled nearly 12,000 troops, but they were all nearly completely inexperienced militia, most of whom came from New York and Pennsylvania. Two sets of earthworks that had been hastily thrown up directly opposite the city on the western shore of the Susquehanna provided the primary defenses for the capital. There were a set of works known as Fort Washington, which stood closest to the river, while a smaller set of entrenchments, named Fort Couch, stood on slightly higher ground just to the west. When Couch learned that Jenkins' 1,200 rebel horsemen had captured Mechanicsburg, he knew that behind Jenkins were the veteran Confederate soldiers of Yule's Corps in Carlisle, and that if Yule attacked the Federal works on the west side of the river, manned by the inexperienced state militia, it was almost certainly a foregone conclusion that Harrisburg would fall. Couch knew the rebels would be aiming to capture the 4,300-foot-long wagon and pedestrian bridge spanning the river, while the railroad bridge that stood alongside it to the south would also be a target. Even if those were destroyed, a large ford located only a short distance downstream from the railroad bridge could be used by the invaders to cross the river. After capturing Mechanicsburg on the morning of the 28th, Jenkins' rebel cavalry probed eastward toward the river. The advancing Confederates engaged in some noisy skirmishing with some Pennsylvania militia and men of the New York National Guard at a place called Oysters Point within a stone's throw of Fort's Couch in Washington. Jenkins' assignment here was not to try to punch through the federal defenses and seize Harrisburg himself, but he was supposed to make a reconnaissance and report to Yule whether his corps could capture the city. To that end, Jenkins, on the night of the 28th, agreed to a plan proposed by Lieutenant Colonel Vincent Witcher of the 34th Virginia Cavalry Battalion, the Comanches. According to Witcher's plan, the following day, the 29th, 
While the Confederate horsemen made a demonstration to occupy the Yankee militia's attention at Oyster Point, a small party of horsemen would take advantage of that distraction to find suitable ground along the river from which they could observe Harrisburg's defenses. And the next day, Monday, June 29th, that is exactly what happened. While the rebel cavalry engaged the attention of the Pennsylvania militia and New York State National Guardsmen at Oysters Point, Jenkins and several of Yule's engineer officers conducted a successful reconnaissance. From a place called Slate Hill, they carefully observed Harrisburg and its defenses. Based on what they saw, and barring any unforeseen circumstances, they were certain Ewell's infantry could begin the march from Carlisle to capture the Pennsylvania State Capitol. And indeed, when Ewell received word of Jenkins' reconnaissance, he quickly issued marching orders, and by 1 p.m. on the afternoon of the 29th, the men of Rhodes' division lined Carlisle streets, prepared to march for Harrisburg. But it was not to be. The orders were quickly countermanded, and when Yule's infantry marched away from Carlisle the next morning, the morning of June 30th, they moved not east toward Harrisburg, but back west. This was because Dick Yule had just received urgent orders from Robert E. Lee to rejoin the rest of the army at Cashtown, eight miles from Gettysburg. When Lee had set Yule in motion toward the Susquehanna and drew up plans for Longstreet and Hill to follow, he had assumed the Federal Army had not yet crossed the Potomac and was still on the Virginia side of that river, guarding Washington. However, on the night of the 28th, Lee had received news that the enemy army was already across its namesake river and coming north quickly. That news meant Lee had to react swiftly and prepare his army to meet the Yankees. And that's why Dick Yule received those urgent orders on the 29th, telling him to abandon the march on Harrisburg and instead reverse course in order to rejoin the rest of the Army of Northern Virginia in assembling at Cashtown on the eastern slope of South Mountain between Chambersburg and Gettysburg. Dick Yule, who, after receiving the report of Jenkins' reconnaissance, had expected to capture Harrisburg with little or no opposition, found the cancellation of the attack especially frustrating. One rebel staff officer noted in his diary that, quote, the general was quite testy and hard to please because disappointed and had everyone flying around, end quote. Yule's frustration and disappointment no doubt mirrored that of Jubal Early's when Early had arrived at Wrightsville to discover the bridge across the Susquehanna had been burnt. Both Jenkins' reconnaissance opposite Harrisburg and a bit farther downriver, the advance of Gordon's Georgians to Wrightsville, have unfortunately usually been relegated to little more than a footnote and are often little remarked upon during discussions of Gettysburg. This has been remedied recently by a couple of books, including this episode's book recommendation, The Confederate Approach on Harrisburg, The Gettysburg Campaign's Northernmost Reaches by Cooper H. Wingert. Wingert's book is an excellent account of Yule's march to Carlisle and the several skirmishes that Jenkins' horsemen engaged in near Harrisburg. And then for a closer look at Early's march to York and the action at Wrightsville, you'll want to pick up last episode's book recommendation, 
Flames Beyond Gettysburg, The Confederate Expedition to the Susquehanna River, June 1863, by Scott L. Mingus, Sr. Between those two books, you'll get the full, fascinating story of the advance of Yule's Corps to the Susquehanna. Writing as an old man in the summer of 1913, Private Robert Vaughn of the 28th Pennsylvania Volunteer Militia, a veteran of Oysters Point, offered this fitting tribute to the Gettysburg Campaign's northernmost reaches. Quote, When a great big wave rolls in, curves its foam-topped mane, and breaks with a roar, we stand back and say, or think, thus far and no farther, scarce noting the little streamlets or the thin, smooth sheet of water that runs and creeps away up the sands of the sloping beach. And so it was at the Battle of Gettysburg. The high water mark on that field is undoubtedly in its proper place, showing where the crested wave of rebellion dashed in to be broken and hurled back by the solid shore of loyalty and patriotism. But the little streams, the thin sheet driven ahead of the big roller, ran away up the beach until they reached the Susquehanna before they receded. The tremendous events and glorious results at Gettysburg and at Vicksburg drowned all smaller noises and happenings, and they were scarcely noted. Yet the sand was wetted at Oysters Point, a scant two miles from Harrisburg. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And as Rich said, our recommendation this time is The Confederate Approach on Harrisburg, The Gettysburg Campaign's Northernmost Reaches by Cooper H. Wingert. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We wanted to let you know that just this morning we released members episode number 102, which is the sixth show in the series of episodes we're doing on Jeb Stewart's controversial ride to Gettysburg. We want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast, and there are quite a few since we've been off the air for a couple of weeks. But thanks to David S., Matt, Shannon, Paul, Dominic, Brian, Doug, Stephen S., Harvey, Charles, Stephen A., John, Jesus, Scott, Dave D., and Paul. And thanks also to James, Michael, Gary, Gerald, and Robert for their donations. And then as we wrap up this episode, we wanted to let you know that obviously we're getting closer to the morning of July 1st and the start of the battle. Right now, we're planning on using the next show to turn our attention back to the Army of the Potomac, and we'll see that Hooker will be out and Meade will be given command. Then we'll do an episode on the marching and maneuvering that will bring the two armies to Gettysburg, and then we'll be at the start of the battle. So, we're getting close. But for now, thanks for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope that you do join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks everyone. Bye.